This episode is brought to you by the Denver Public Library. This season is all about women writers who are working to create community impact. We think elevating the work of these writers is so important that we've partnered with one of our favorite community resources, our local library system, Denver Public Library to be exact. And whether you're in Denver or someplace else, the library wants you to know that they're still here providing vital community resources. The Denver Public Library works to foster a culture of exploration, innovation, and forward thinking, and is focused on creating a strong community where everyone thrives. Head over to denverlibrary.org to access the latest virtual events and resources and find some of the great books by many of the talented authors we've had the pleasure of featuring this season. Hey, it's Tanji Renee. Before we get to the show, I'm popping in to quickly ask for a huge favor. If you're a fan of this show, we could really use your support. We have a big goal of growing our listenership this season, and we could only do it with your help. Please take a few seconds to subscribe to this podcast. Look at your phone right now and hit subscribe. Next, if you're listening on an app like Apple Podcasts that allows you to leave a review, please give us a five-star review. Reviews actually go a really long way in helping our show get discovered by new listeners. And if you want to go the extra mile, leave us a written review in addition to the five stars. That helps even more. This show has grown because of the incredible support of our listeners, and we have an ambitious goal of getting to our next 10,000 downloads this season. We can't reach our goal without your help, so please subscribe rate this podcast, and don't forget to keep sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. Just hit share from wherever you're listening. That's it. Easy peasy. Thanks in advance for all your support. Smooches. Welcome back, everyone, to That's What She Did podcast. I'm Tangie Renee, and I'm sorry to say that it's a wrap, folks. This is it, the final episode of season six, the She Wrote That series. I've been so proud of all of the wonderful authors that we've been able to get on the show this season. And thank you so much for all the wonderful feedback that we've gotten from you all. From the bottom of my heart, from now until forever, thank you for being such amazing listeners and supporters of this show. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter for the most up-to-date information as we drop trailers and get ready for the new season, which will be dropping in March of 2021. Until then, I am so, so excited to introduce you to our latest author, Evie Zaboy. She's incredible. I enjoyed speaking with her so much. Evie Zaboy holds an MFA from Vermont College of Fine Arts, and her novel, American Street, was a National Book Award finalist and a New York Times notable book. She's also the author of Pride and My Life as an Ice Cream Sandwich, a New York Times bestseller. She's the editor of the anthology Black Enough. Born in Haiti and raised in New York City, she now lives in New Jersey with her husband and three children. I'm thrilled to introduce you to her latest novel, which really is a work of art called Punching the Air. It's a collaboration between Ibi Zaboy and exonerated five-member Yusuf Salam. It tells the story of a teenage boy, Amal, who has been wrongfully convicted of a crime. The book is beautifully rendered. It's a work of art, and it delves into the disenfranchisement of a young black man. I really enjoyed this book, even though it's typically not the kind of thing that I would read. 
but I think you're gonna love it. And I'm excited that we get to give this book away. It's one of my favorite books of the entire season, and I can't wait to get it into your hands. So if you have not registered for our giveaway, this is your last shot to win this really beautiful book. Head over to That's What She Did podcast forward slash giveaway to enter. Thank you again for all the love and it's a wrap. I'll see you next season. Till next time. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I have E.B. boy on the show to talk about her work in Punching the Air, which she co-authored with another amazing writer and activist that we're excited to talk about today. And we're just going to jump right in. There's a lot to say, I think, about this book, and I don't want to waste any time. So let's do this. Welcome, E.B., to the show. Hi, Tangia. I didn't ask how to pronounce your name. You got it. Tangia. Tangia. <laughs> yes. And E.B. with a long I. You said it correctly. Thank you. <laughs> I was a little nervous about that. But yeah. like I said, it's just like it's spelled. So Yeah. And I think I go through that too, where people see like a non-Anglophone name. You know, they'll think like, they'll see Tangia and think it's like, okay, is that Maria? No, there's no M. You know, they go way <laughs> off with whatever they think the pronunciation is. So, Oh, yeah. It's nuts. I get Cynthia a lot, which always blows my mind. <laughs> so. uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just get the accents wrong. So it's E-B, long I, but some people will be like, E-B? You know, so <laughs> making it real hard. Yeah, yeah. Complicating. Yes. Well, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us on the show. Thank you for having me. I have a recent, recent dream of mine is to have a podcast as well. I am missing like that sort of one-on-one conversation. And I find myself listening to more podcasts. It's still new to me. I know people have been doing it for a while. You have yours for six years? Well, no, it's been, I started it in 2018, but I do two seasons a year. Okay. This is our sixth season. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) It's going strong. I will say if you feel compelled to start a podcast, start one. We need more women and more women of color in the industry. I would encourage you to give it a go, even if you did it once a month and just got started and did it according to your time frame. And yeah, you should. I mean, it's a powerful medium if you think about it. It's Yeah, it is. It is. Media and we need more people with strong voices in media and you know, it has a fairly low barrier entry. It's a ton of work like anything else that you want to do, but you know, you can get your voice out there and get other people's voice out there, which is really cool. Yeah. And hopefully maybe I can just try out some ideas with you here. Absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. (laughs) This is probably the first one-on-one interview I've had with another woman of color. So really, I'm surprised. Yeah, I've been doing podcasts. It's been with Youssef, but I think this, I want to say this is my first, yeah, podcast interview with another woman of color where I'm by myself. Well, I will say I felt a little bad about not inviting your co-author, Youssef okay. <laughs> But I, like, I explained to your publisher, I was like, actually, I would love to talk to both. However, this is a show for women and about women, so... <laughs> pushback where they're trying to like no (laughs) not at all they were like oh yeah it's probably cool we'll just ask and I was like thank you (laughs) I appreciate being the first that's great yeah yeah different energy different vibe different conversation goes a different way yeah we're super laid back on this show so if I didn't tell you before don't feel like you need to filter yourself you just do you we're all adults here we're good (laughs) I love it 
So before we get into punching the air, I want to just ask you a little bit about you and give our listeners an opportunity to get to know EB a little bit. So how did you come to be a writer? Well, let's start with my name, which is not my birth name. I was born in Haiti and I legally changed my name when I got married. So I was born Pascal Philanthrope. It is a very French, ooh la la, wee wee name. <laughs> my mother is a fancy lady. We're different. We're very different. So I did not feel as fancy and I didn't feel very French when I started to learn about the world and colonialism and Africa and Haiti. I didn't change my name because I wanted a different identity. I was actually trying to hide from the kind of articles I was writing for my college newspaper. Like I would report on things that were happening, just daily reporting. And then I would write what people are calling think pieces now. I would write op-eds and I was terribly afraid of writing a certain phrase in the newspaper. And I thought I'd get in trouble with my professors. That phrase was white supremacy. This was 20 years ago when it was just like taboo, you know, to write these things. And I was so proud that I had learned what political hegemony is and feminism. And as all college students are like, you know, when they learn new things, they want to like let the world know how smart they are. That was me. I was also a spoken word poet. I was growing up in New York City. Well, not growing up. In college, the spoken word movement was really the thing to do. It wasn't clubbing. Actually, I started clubbing and didn't like the club scene. So my new club scene was the open mic night. Club of sorts. I've been to my fair share (laughs) of sorts. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of people, when you saw the list, you'd put your name down. Everybody had an alternate name. And a lot of them, and my inspirations were poet America Baraka, who was Leroy Jones, and Tazake Shage, who did For Colored Girls. She changed her name. Toni Morrison was not Toni Morrison. So I was learning about all these writers who had reclaimed the pen name, and I came up with a pen name. It wasn't Evie Zaboy. E.B. was a translation of my first name, Pascal, and I found a Yoruba West African word that means writer. And that word is akoe. So I named myself, and anu was like a translation of philanthrope or being into charity. So I had like a West African translation of my name and I added writer to that. So I thought I was just very clever. And <laughs> it's clever. <laughs> and I, right. And I put it there and it was my journalist name. It would be my author name. And I'd have my own very Haitian name to hold on to until I met my husband. Mm-hmm. My husband, very English name, Joseph Scott, but he's West African and he He has about three or four names that are African in between his Anglophone names. And he told me the story of his grandfather going to missionary school in the 30s and how as part of their graduation, they were handed European names. Mm. And that's how he got his last name from his grandfather. So his last name, Scott, was only two generations old. And he had that story. He was just like, I want to get rid of that name. It stops with me. So in terms of his paternal bloodline, Scott, like he was only colonized for two, two and a half generations. (laughs) Actually, if I take half grandfather's adulthood, his entire father's life, and then half his life, his childhood up until he turned 30. Mm -hmm. 
thought existed. That colonized last name existed in his bloodline. And then when he met me, he was just like, I want to drop this name and take back my tribal name. And I was like, I want some of that. I want some of that uncolonized. (laughs) That's where Zoboy comes from. And people think it's French or Haitian, as in Dubois, but it's not. It's from Liberia. Interesting. And it hasn't been colonized. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. <laughs> get that makes sense. I like it. Hey there, my fellow inspiration junkies. Do you miss browsing shelves for books, movies, and music? Denver Public Library is still here for you, offering these great resources both online and curbside. Tell Denver Public Library what you like to read or what you're craving, and they'll send you a whole entire personalized reading list with five to eight customized recommendations just for you. You can even place holds of up to 10 items that you can pick up curbside at most locations. How's that for convenience? Need a library card? No worries. Register for an e-card today and immediately access hundreds of e-media resources like e-books, audiobooks, music, movies, and so much more. And yes, it's all still free. I'm not ashamed to admit that I am totally a library junkie. You can call me a nerd if you want to, honey. I'll take it. Denver Public Library branches will be reopening soon, so make sure you check out denverlibrary.org for the latest info, and don't forget to follow Denver Public Library on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Smooches! Listener perks alert! I'm excited to tell you about Libro FM. It lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you get the same audiobooks at the same prices as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. For every purchase you make on Libro FM, a local bookstore of your choosing gets half the profits. It's a super simple way to shop local right from your own phone. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and you don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. Listeners of That's What She Did podcast can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Who doesn't love a BOGO? I know I do. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SHEDID. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Now, how's that for a listener perk? So I want to give our audience an opportunity to get to know Punching the Air because I think it's such an impactful story. And I have to be honest with you and tell you, of all the books I read this season, so I read every book for every person that we had on the show. Yours was the last one. And of every book this season, this was the hardest book for me to read, but in a good way. It's not a criticism at all. It's so heartbreaking 
in a lot of ways that it it took me the longest to read because I would read, <laughs> you know, a few of the prose in it and I would have to put it down mm-hmm. because it's so raw and so timely. And 2020 is the year that stripped us all bare. And so reading it was like, oh my God. Oh, like I would read it like, oh my God. And I would have to put it down. <laughs> like, I can't read that tomorrow because it's too much. I can't accept it all at one time. Have you had that reaction from other people? I don't know. The healthiest thing that any writer can do for their career is to remove yourself from other people's reactions, other people's feedback on your book. Even if they're some friends, they say, well, maybe I can say, okay, I'll put that in the back of my mind. But once it's out there, it's out there. Except, you know, in revision stains, I can change some things. But I don't know. I have no idea. I like when there are Instagram pics. I just posted something where people do beautiful displays with the book. And that's all I can. And hopefully that beautiful display comes with like a positive review. That's what I'll share. That's what I pay attention to, the art of it, the time that it takes to just make a a bookstagram, they call them, post. But other than that, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know if I care. Did it feel sort of raw in the writing process for you and your co-author? Raw in what way? Raw emotions or raw? Emotionally. You know what? I think I met Youssef in college that same, in 1999, when I was just sharing with you that I was a journalist. I went after him for a news story after he'd walked into our classroom and we remembered who he was. I grew up in New York City and I was a child when the Central Park Five jogger case took place. There was a lot of violence in New York City, but there was a lot of joy and fun and innovation as well when it came to children playing outside. So by the time I met him, I was ready to go in. You know, I was, he had not yet been exonerated. He was falsely registered as a sex offender and he was in his early 20s and the world thought he was still guilty. And I was just that scrappy journalist, wannabe journalist chasing a story. And I was just like, you got to get your story out to the people. And he wasn't ready to tell his story. So we ended up walking and talking after that. And I never saw him again, but I followed his case closely. So we ran into each other again in 2017 when I was promoting one of my books. The rawness comes from years of experiencing or living through the injustices in this country and in my particular city, New York City. It's things that I have said or written when I was in my 20s as a spoken word artist. It's things I've heard other people say. So I am not saying anything new. That's how I'm defining rawness, something that just is just out there. It's not that raw to me. It is honest. And I think maybe that honesty is rawness, but I think in my writing, I like to be honest in that way. Yeah. So I'm going to back up for a minute just to bring our readers a little more into the book, since I'm going to assume most of them haven't read it yet. And Punching the Air is a story about a boy who is wrongfully convicted and has to fight for his life really, in a system that is designed to strip him of his humanity, to demonize him, to victimize 
him in every way possible. And so it's this, for me, that's where the rawness comes from. It's the realness of that story of what he has to endure and survive. And I think what adds to it is that you did co-author it with Yusuf Salami, who experienced this in real life. And so your co-author wasn't exonerated until like early 2000s, right? I think so. Yeah. Early 2000s. 2013 is when he got the settlement. But yes, when the assailant came forward, it wasn't immediate. They had to go and do all the legalities of going back to the trial and looking at the evidence and looking at the the true assailant's DNA evidence. So yeah, he wasn't, I don't want to misspeak, but mm-hmm. yeah, he was exonerated fairly recently. That's just amazing to me. And I think, again, I keep coming back to this word rawness. I can't imagine, especially at his age, going through what all those boys went through, being wrongfully convicted of a crime they didn't commit, spent a good chunk of their lives in prison, get out, but are still under the guise of being considered guilty of this crime. And many years have to pass before they're fully exonerated. And then they have to go through this whole other process of trying to get some form of justice for themselves from the system. And so I don't know if it's because of that, because of his real life experience, that the hardness comes through in the writing. So that hardness that you say is not from Yousef. It's me writing the book. So there are about four poems that were written by Yousef when he was incarcerated. He had a self-published book of poems, and that's where I saw the inspiration for Amal. I'm also a poet, so I was able to play with the words and the emotions. Yousef did not express rage and anger in the way that 16-year-old Amal does. Of course, I'm speaking to the man who is, you know, in his 40s, and he's been exonerated, and he's been talking about this case for years. So I had to imagine an angry 16-year-old boy, a rage-filled 16-year-old boy. And from that imagination, couple it with that sort of cultural awareness that Yousef had to create this experience, this event, this story, basically. Yeah, I think the realness of it comes through. Even though this is fiction, it feels very real. It felt to me like this could have been someone's autobiography. Yeah, that's part of creative writing. I had to sink into the skin of this fictional character. I could not have gone as deeply and as raw as you said if I had not had those conversations with Yousef, if he did not share some of his wisdom. And he did guide a lot of the incidences, meaning we had to think about a crime. We had to think, he talks about It's a sort of in-the-moment rage that boys can have that they can't take back. That in-the-moment rage, that mistake can change the course of their lives forever. And this is how we came up with the crime that happens in the book. Just him sharing that with me. I, I don't know that. I don't know that about boys. I know we, I can't say women or men, that's binary thinking, but I know for me, I'll get angry, but I don't act on that anger. It's all internal, right? I've Mm -hmm. never felt like punching a wall or anything like that. I will cry before I do that. But for a lot of other people, you know, especially boys, teen boys going through puberty, they may want to express that rage in a physical way. And this is when fights happen. This is when people get hurt. Those mistakes, those in the moment mistakes, yes, can have harmful consequences, but those mistakes are not 
for some people, for some children, it's a mistake. For others, it's part of their, society says that it's part of their personhood, that they are prone to violence versus prone to making a mistake. And this is what essentially is, what the story is about essentially, who gets to make mistakes and who gets considered a monster. I think on the surface, we would say that this is a story about racism, both blatant and subtle. And that definitely exists, right? Because we're, just as you said, we're talking about, here's a boy that is cast in the role of a monster simply because he's a black boy. Well, the white kids who are also his age that were participating in the event that led to the crime were doing the same things, but they're not monsters. They were children that were making mistakes. So there's that. But there was this other underlying theme that kept coming through for me, and it's about how boys, because our main character is an artist. He's emotional and he expresses himself artistically. And so this other theme that came through for me was about how boys are not allowed to be emotional. Amal is not allowed to be emotional. He's, in fact, he's like punished for it. And that was so sad, I think. And I think it's very indicative of the way many boys in our society are raised and socialized to be. And it's not a wonder that at some point you may erupt with rage when something horrible has happened. Right. It seems like almost a logical conclusion. Right. We had to write those tender moments for him to just show his humanity. We're not saying anything about tenderness. We're not simply saying something about boys, fry too. What we're saying is he is a whole person and he comes with a whole set of emotions. And this is part of humanizing Black children is that they do have regrets, right? You know, it's not this bravado that we see them display or we see the media perpetuate. It is, there is an internal dialogue that happens. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a, what if I turned away? What if I didn't do that? What if? All of that is just about making him human because Yusef is a whole person. He was a whole person as a 16, 15 year old in the same way that the arrested exonerated five members were whole children in the same way that all children who are caught up in the criminal justice system are whole people with emotions who are the result of their environments who are the result of oppression, racism, all the isms that are just placed on them. This is a reaction. This is how they're responding to society. Mm -hmm. As the writer, on a personal level, does it get to you that you need to tell a story that humanizes Black children? What do you mean, does it get to me? We're in 2020 and we're still dealing with this. And I'm not in the industry that you're in. I'm not writing stories about this. It's difficult when you take it all in and you're like, here, we're still doing this. This is still a problem. It's very frustrating. And so I'm just curious to know, does that have an impact on you on a personal level as you're going through the process of the writing? Well, you know, the thing about writing is I have a very different view of writing. There are writers who are putting out a book and they hope that their books do well. It is a product that they say, you know, is telling their truth or it's healing or to have readers empathize with the characters. However, for me, I can't write a book or tell a story if I'm not changed by it. Mm -hmm. I have to grow from whatever it is. I have to grow 
as I'm writing something, I'm learning something new. I don't like to think that I know everything by virtue of writing a book. There's, you know, there are teachers who are looking to me for answers simply because I wrote a novel about a teen boy or I write for teen children. I'm not in the classroom. You're in the classroom. You're practicing this every day. Anything that I can say is just coming from my imagination and not from daily practice. But what I can share is how I've come to an understanding about anything whatsoever. So if I'm writing about race, I have to write in a certain way that my views change from the beginning of writing the book to the end. And by that, I mean how I changed from writing Punching the Air is that there are larger things at play. There is serendipity and fate at play, no matter how much racism you experience. It is no coincidence that Yusuf has been able to tell his story in so many different mediums. And it's not about him, it's about the need for that truth to get out there. So there is a larger purpose to everything. I didn't set out to write this book with him. Actually, I questioned myself, should I be doing this? I have other things that I want to write. But I realized that there is a larger purpose. If I met him 21 years ago for a reason, if I ran into him three years ago for a reason, then I'm here. I got to do this. And I don't know what's going to come around the corner, what the end result is. But for me, I realized that I'm not just writing books. I'm not just writing about race. I am answering a call. I am in service to a larger purpose. Punching the air for me was, it felt so impactful. It feels very real. It doesn't feel like fiction even. And I was a little bit like, I don't know if I, how much I'm going to like this. It's an entire story told in poetry form. And I actually, I like poetry. I read a lot of poetry, listen to a lot of poetry, but I've never actually read a novel that was all poetry. <laughs> So it was a little bit of a new experience for me. And in that, I'm wondering if, did you set out to write it this way? Or did this come yeah. more organically? Well, Yusef has a book of poetry. I was a poet. There have been other YA novels written in poetry, like Elizabeth Acevedo's The Poet mm -hmm. X, Long Way Down by Jason Reynolds. Mickey Grimes writes poetry for young people. So I know there's been novels written in poetry for young people, but this one, it includes some of Yousef's like hip hop lyrics, right? So it was a no brainer for us. I could not write this in prose because that's so much more research. We didn't want it to be about the crime. We didn't want it to be about what the jail cell looks like. Mm -hmm. It is an internal journey of a boy. So it's choppy, you know, mm -hmm. it's not in order, you know, it's not linear and it's very cerebral and emotional and lots of metaphors. You have to read between the lines and connect the dots. And the only way that we could have done that is through poetry where you can say so much with very few words. And I think that speaks to the emotions of young people where they don't have the vocabulary to articulate their emotions, but there are so many emotions I think teenagers are walking poetry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely came through that you're reminded throughout that this is the internal journey of a kid who's growing up in this impossible situation and just trying to survive, but also finding ways to be somebody that transcends where he is. Yeah, he's, well, he is somebody. He is not mm -hmm. trying to be, he is somebody. He just wants other people to recognize that. What was it about this story that you decided that you needed to write it? 
you said there were other things that you wanted to write. So why this one? I just ran into him. I ran into him and it was one of those like, wow, you should really write a book for young people. And realizing he's not a writer, this isn't going to happen. Okay, I guess I have to do this. <laughs> this won't happen unless it was one of those things like I could connect him with somebody else. And I'm like, I don't think the universe wants me to do that. I was invited to a professor's home at a book festival and she had invited about four black women authors. And she said she invited another man, you know, just to break bread and the doorbell rings and in walks Yusef. And I'm like, hey, what are you doing here? And he didn't recognize me. I was like Hunter College, 1999, Professor so-and-so, you know, and it took him a while to remember. He still doesn't remember the more I talk about it. He's just like, you know what? I think I do remember. So that sort of thing. And I'm talking about doing school visits and he's like, I want to be around teens more. And I'm like, this story should be told to teens. Are you kidding me? Why are you self-published? You should be writing your novel. And realizing, like, if he's going to tell his story, he would need a ghostwriter. And I'm like, I'm not going to be a ghostwriter. We're going to get credit here. But mm -hmm. let's tell the story of the Central Park Five, because I can't believe people still don't know this story. And it happened to you as a teen. I write for teens. You know, it was just serendipitous. I could have still been a journalist, right? I could have gone any other route after I had met him in college. But it just so happens that my profession is writing for teens and what happened to him happened to him as a teen. The why was it just like, you know, I have to tell this story to change this world. It's like all our paths met. I believe in divine intervention and all mm -hmm. of that. Everything came together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a really beautiful story. So I've, I've been really excited to be able to introduce this to our audience for those of them that haven't read it yet. I do think it's impactful. What is the impact that you were hoping to have with it? I don't know. We get that question often. Mm -hmm. it's, to, it's more to show people that there are different kinds of Black children that exist in the world. Black children are not a monolith. Children of color are not a monolith. So here is this young man who was accused of a heinous crime, but he is a tender, sensitive visual artist and poet. Mm -hmm. You know, he has dreams. He is loved, but he's angry. He got into a fight. You know, in Yusef's case, he went to the park. He wanted to hang out. It was almost 80 degrees that day in April. And New York City, kids played outside, and you hear like a whole bunch of people are hanging out in the park, right? Lo and behold, there are like dozens of kids in the park just wreaking havoc. And you walk into that melee, right? Not knowing what's going to be the outcome. There's nothing that he did wrong mm -hmm. to get him there. Of sure, some kids were just beating up on people in bikes, but Honestly, growing up in New York City, that was not the worst thing that could happen to a pedestrian in New York City. New York City was violent. My mother got mugged by teenagers in New York City. But in the midst of all of that, even if you have 10 boys lined up for beating up on people, each of those 10 boys are different. Each of those 10 boys got to that spot in different ways. You know, you can have somebody who comes from an abusive household and this is their relationship to violence. And then out of those 10, you could have someone who doesn't come from an abusive, who comes from a loving home, but this is the boy that he befriends. 
all these circumstances lead these boys into like one ending, one road, but they're all so different. And here is a story of one of those boys. And we just want the world to know, like, here's a human, here's a child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was beautiful. Like I said, it was really raw for me. I did love reading it. I think love to see a lot of people read this because it, there's so much to be said. There's so much nuance in it. And, you know, how often do you get to see the internal journey play out almost in real time for a character? I mean, I don't necessarily see that a lot. It had to go very in-depth into this person's psyche, kind of. So I loved it. I enjoyed reading it, even though it was hard. (laughs) Even though it took me on a little bit of a trip and I was like, ooh, girl, I need a break. (laughs) I need to go watch some comedy. (laughs) What is your experience? Do you have any experience with... Young people incarcerated with a prison industrial complex, anything? What drew you to that, to pick up that book in the first place and invite me here? I don't remember how I learned about the book. It was probably just in the course of once the theme for the season was selected and just researching different authors and somehow it came into my sphere and I thought looked interesting. I mean, the cover is very artistic and colorful. And I was like, oh, that looks interesting. And I started to read some excerpts and I was like, okay, I'm gonna check it out. And this is, this sounds like a a great book for the season. I didn't expect it to have any kind of personal impact on me. But to be perfectly honest with you, it was probably so raw for me because I do have experience with the prison industrial complex. In mm-hmm. fact, it probably shaped my entire life. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have, my experience was that my father went to prison when I was one. Okay. And my mm-hmm. earliest memories of him are in a prison visiting room. And I have a cousin that was 16 and convicted of a crime that he didn't actually commit, he was there when it happened. And that was really hard. We were very close. And there were several other experiences about how the prison industrial complex touched my life. And so it was tough in certain moments for me to read. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's such a big issue. And now as an adult, I don't need to give it much thought. I'm aware of it. I definitely take it into account in uh, my political life when I'm voting. This is the kind of issue I'm concerned about. I want to know what the candidate has to say about it. What are they going to do about it? Um, But I think this is the first time I read something that really felt like, ah, that hit a sensitive spot. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. But I loved it. And so I want to make sure we recommend it to our listeners who are also readers. (laughs) And I want to remind everybody that you have an opportunity to win Punching the Air, the copy that I have sitting right here next to me. Just make sure you go to thatswhatshedidpodcast.com so that you can enter. And every week we are picking a listener who's going to get one of these books. So Go enter now. Make sure your name is on the list. We pick randomly, but you have an opportunity to read this. And although, you know, I would say that it's classified as young adult, this is a book for anybody. You don't need to be 16 to read this. I'm in my 30s. And, (laughs) you know, it left me feeling a lot of things. So I definitely recommend it. I love it. And I'm excited to be able to gift this copy to one of our listeners. So thank you, Evie, to you and your publisher and and Yusuf as well for writing the book, for making it happen. And then your publisher for getting us a copy that we are able to pay it forward to one of our listeners. Thank you so much, Tangia. Thank you for having me.
Definitely my pleasure. Where would you like our listeners to go to learn more about your work and pick up the book? I am at E.B. Zavoy on Instagram and ebzavoy.net is my website. I am currently not on the Twitter. While we are in a pandemic and everything is in chaos, I just like to just need some quiet mental space. But so far, I like posting pictures on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. We will connect to all the places for you in our show notes to make it easier for our listeners to learn more about your book, follow you on Instagram and all the places. And folks, you know the drill. If you are not subscribe to the podcast yet i really have no idea what you are waiting for if you want to get more great episodes hear from more great authors and other women of impact you need to be subscribed so that you don't miss these episodes as they are available as always thank you from the bottom of my heart for your commitment and love of the show we have grown to a global audience because of you because you share what we talk about you share the episodes and that's how we continue to grow so please keep doing that thank you again from the bottom of my heart, Evie, and please extend my gratitude to Yusuf as well. I really enjoyed your book, even though it did make me want to cry at certain points. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for reading Punching the Air. My pleasure, for sure. All right, folks, until next time, we out. Bye.